the Gospel of Luke 4, 14 to 21. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Thanks be to God. Loving God, may the words that flow from my mouth make sense because they're inspired by your Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the last time we had a look at something from Luke's Gospel, it was Boxing Day. Uh, and we had the story of 12-year-old Jesus making his way to the temple and everybody being worried about where he would be. Since then, over the last few weeks, we've had a journey to the start of John's Gospel, the very beginning. Uh, and then uh, we've gone to Matthew's Gospel to talk about uh, the wise men and uh, the Feast of Epiphany. And then last week we came back to John's Gospel for the beginning of what we see in John's Gospel as the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus with the wedding at Cana. But since we left John's Gospel, there's been a lot, but, uh, since we left Luke's Gospel, there's been a lot going on in the in-between times, even though there's only about a chapter's difference. Jesus grew up and found himself getting baptised the Holy Spirit descends on him and leads him into the wilderness where he's tempted for 40 days and nights. And where we pick up, we find Jesus filled with the power of the Holy Spirit returning home to the region of Galilee to begin his public ministry according to what St. Luke writes. I was quite surprised um, when I looked at um, my folder that contains all my past sermons to find out that I've only ever preached on this passage once. This passage comes up every three years, so every other year I must have been on holidays or uh, somebody else has preached or we might have preached on something different. Uh, but the only other time that I preached on this passage was way back in January 2007. And it just so happened to be my first sermon in public parish ministry. It wasn't my first sermon ever, but it was really nostalgic to look back, a little bit cringy actually, to see some of the words that I had written and spoken. Um, but it seemed to sort of make me sort of stop and think in the sense that I had a, my first public words were in response to Jesus' first 
public words in Luke's Gospel. These weren't Jesus' first teaching words, though. Luke recounts that a report about him had spread throughout the surrounding country. Now, that wouldn't have happened, I suspect, if Jesus hadn't been saying or doing anything in the lead-up to the moment. Quite possibly, their wedding at Cana had already happened, and we had that sort of murmur starting to spread around that Jesus probably was teaching and preaching in other parts as well. But because these are Jesus' first adult words, if you like, that Luke records, I think it's worth having a close look at them this morning. As I was reading my old sermon, I remembered that weight of expectation that I felt when I was delivering that sermon all those years ago. Back then, I was one of only two people who were getting ordained that year. And this little church in the centre of Newcastle, which was the oldest church building in the whole of Newcastle, had never in their whole history had an assistant minister. And I was going to be there first. And the way that I got to be there first was they had made a decision to use all of their savings and take a punt at having an extra minister. And those funds would last four years. And they'd see what happened after that. But they trusted God that the kingdom would be blessed and grow and work would be done. I might sound like a little bit of a humble brag, but I was a known quantity. I'd gone to school with the priest. I also knew a number of the church members. Uh, some of uh, my friends were going to that church. And if people didn't know me personally, they knew my reputation, particularly in music and youth ministry. Newcastle's a very small place. And I joked as I began my sermon. So this comes from my old sermon, 2007. The first words that I said was, Then Stuart, filled with the Spirit, returned to Newcastle and report about him spread throughout all the surrounding suburbs he began to teach at St. John's and was praised by everyone. I was joking, and I think that they laughed. Well, at least there was polite laughter, I think. But I did feel, on reflection, an overwhelming sense of responsibility, far beyond what my capacity actually was, that I could even imagine to come close to anywhere like they were praying and believing that God would do in their community and beyond. Today's gospel passage sharpens when Jesus moves from his speaking tour in Galilean synagogues to his home synagogue of Nazareth, the village where he grew up, the place where he was a known quantity and everyone knew who he was. I wonder, as his reputation began to grow, whether there might have been a sense of pride amongst this community, that there might have been words like, I know his parents. I knew him when he was growing up, and I always thought he was destined for great things. Maybe even 
I went to school with him. Today's reading cuts the story in half. And I'm sorry for the spoiler for next week, but it doesn't end well. He gets run out of town. And they try to throw Jesus off a cliff. But we'll get to that next week. Fortunately, after my first sermon, I wasn't run out of Newcastle. And what began as a four-year plan ended up being a seven-year ministry. Through the Holy Spirit's presence and obedience to God's leading, I was privileged to witness God powerfully at work in that church community and the surrounding wider community. And I remained humble to this day at the small role I was able to play and how it really grounded me foundationally for my ministry uh, that I'm living into now. But as we look at this passage again, or I do, again after 15-odd years, as I realise that these words come from Jesus' mouth after being anointed by the Holy Spirit in his baptism, after being obedient to the power of the Holy Spirit by going out into the wilderness, it makes me wonder what type of ministry will result when we have the Spirit's anointing and when we have demonstrated obedience. One of the features of Luke's Gospel is that it will often cause us to ask these questions. Who needs attention and who needs compassion? And in this passage, it should be obvious. It is the poor, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed. Sure, we could have a look at this passage and explore what it might mean to bring good news to the poor parts of ourselves, metaphorically. We could look at this passage and ask, how could we proclaim release for what is captive in our lives? There's always something captive in, it, in everybody's life. We could look at this passage and ask ourselves, how do we restore what we have become blind too, because everybody has blind spots. We could even ask, what could we set free about what is being oppressed about our lives? We could claim God's grace and favour for ourselves. But the startling thing about this passage, as I find myself approaching it again this time, is... For me at least, I found very little that directly connects the good news that Jesus talks about with me personally. Sure, things are pretty tough at the moment for everyone. I can't find all the things that would normally go in my shopping trolley when I go over to the town centre. Some of the restaurants that I like to go to are closed at the moment. We've had to do things differently in the life of the church that's made things more challenging. The world is kind of crazy, isn't it? There's threats of war in Europe. There's pandemics being responded to in different ways in different places all over the place. 
Our government is considering a religious discrimination bill and I need to be extra careful about how I protect myself, my family and others, more so than I would normally thought I would have ever had to. And to be honest, who could have ever imagined a world where the Wiggles would have won Triple J's Hottest 100? My goodness. What a crazy world. But it is a really, really, really big stretch for me to start associating myself with being poor, captive, blind, or oppressed. Jesus proclaims good news for people who are not in the least like me. That doesn't mean that I'm excluded. It doesn't mean that I'm cast out. But I need to approach these words differently. The word that is translated as poor in the Greek means to do with economic status or other factors that lower a person's status in that first century world. Things like gender, genealogy, Occupation, sickness, disability, degree of religious purity. Jesus' mission is directed to these poor in that holistic sense, who for various reasons have been relegated to the margins of society. Jesus insists that these very outsiders are the special objects of God's grace and mercy. I can't help but wonder how many in that synagogue on that day were not unlike you and me. Comfortably, whatever middle class looked like in that world in Nazareth. How many of them would not normally have associated themselves with being on the margins or outsiders. By the very fact they were inside the synagogue, they were insiders. But what they heard from Jesus was no hometown preferential treatment, no prioritization of the people that Jesus had known for all those years. They heard a message that said, This is not for you. This is not about you. And I wonder if we hear the same message today. And if we don't, how far have we distorted this good news to suit our own preferences or to work to our advantage? After reading from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, which sends a very, very clear message where Jesus will focus his attention and compassion. He steps it up a whole level with his one-sentence commentary and says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. These are really interesting words. It's kind of like Jesus saying, here it is, here I am, 
where are you? The Jewish scriptures are full of stories of Israel's oppression and hardship. And what comes out of that is a command for the people of Israel to take special notice to those who find themselves in similar situations. Many scholars have linked the year of the Lord's favour that Jesus reads from the prophet Isaiah to what was known as the year of Jubilee that you find if you look up Leviticus 25. It was a year, probably around the 50th year, where indentured servants were to be set free, debts were to be forgiven, and land and property returned to families who had either leased or sold that land in the previous 49 years. It was to be a year of radical restoration. The problem was that as much as this was embedded in both Jewish law and culture, historians had found very little evidence that suggests that a year of jubilee was widely or regularly practiced in Israel. Instead, it was held up as some future hope or ideal that would someday come to pass. Jesus says, today, this is happening. No more just talking about the poor, captive, blind and oppressed. The good news is that this all starts to change today. We can't keep projecting this vision into the future. It all changed 2,000 years ago with Jesus. And we can see clearly evidenced in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, Jesus' clear priority for the marginalised. But in that priority, he doesn't say to those who are listening, who might be of other parts of society, other castes or class systems, that they can't follow him towards the poor, the captive, the blind, and the oppressed. Quite the opposite. Jesus seems to have built quite a following of people who actually did follow him in that direction. But what he's saying is that this is who this good news is for first and foremost. I wonder if Jesus was using 2021-22 vernacular, whether he might have said something like, the good news is that poor, captive, blind and oppressed lives matter. If you find that confronting, then the most startling part of Jesus' one-sentence mic drop moment is yet to come. It's in the last part. It's easily glossed over, and I think I missed it first time round. I preached on it. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Let's just pause on that for a moment. The scripture is fulfilled not in Jesus' presence with them there and then, 
The scripture is not fulfilled in what Jesus will currently say and do and what Jesus will do from that point on or even three years later. This scripture is fulfilled in their, and I would suggest our, hearing. What does that mean? I think it's massive. It means that the impact of this good news is dependent on the presence of the Holy Spirit in and through those who will hear and will obey and will act on it and follow Jesus in the direction where he is going. Jesus left no doubt that his ministry would be distinctive. But is the work of the church now distinctive from any other community group or not-for-profit? In our Western worldview, have we grasped the truth that the good news isn't just for us? It's for those who are poor, captive, blind or oppressed, not just as well, but especially for them which causes us to ask some really, really big questions. Questions like, does the comfort and security that we've gotten used to get in the way of our ability to hear and care for others? Are we actually aware of who needs attention? Are we actually aware of who needs compassion? Or do we just get concerned when the attention and the compassion shifts away from us? Are we afraid that there's not enough of God's good blessings for everyone so that we need to make sure that we guard or protect the blessings that we have so we don't lose them? The biggest question for me comes from that one-sentence commentary. Is this scripture fulfilled in my hearing, in our hearing today? Jesus invites all to come to him, but Jesus also invites all to come with him. But where he will always be heading is towards the poor, the captive, the blind, and the oppressed. I wonder, will you follow? What will it look like? Where will Jesus lead us? I pray that as we rest on Jesus' powerful words, even though everything inside us might want to rush to the, the closest cliff and throw it off and get back to focusing on ourselves, we might be challenged afresh. That we have a role to play in the mission of the kingdom of God. Jesus is speaking to us that through us, God's kingdom might be known. Not just so we feel connected 
and special and linked to God. That is part of it, absolutely. But particularly, that the poor, the captive, the blind and the oppressed might only hear, might not only hear, but see the good news at work through the church and the people of God. Amen. Let's stand as we sing, No Longer Slaves. And as we're realizing our freedom, might we focus our attention on how we might bring that to one another.